Hey there, you're with Disembodied Podcast. This is Evie Escher. This week I've got a deep-thinking Australian with me. His name is Simon Drew. He is a philosophical mentor. He's a poet, an author, a musician, and a photographer. He has a Bachelor's of Music Performance from the Queensland Conservatorium of Music, and he's currently working toward a Master of Divinity at Trinity College, Queensland. If you're familiar with the Practical Stoic podcast, he was part of that effort, which has since evolved into The Walled Garden. Simon just put out his first book. It's called The Poet and the Sage, and I'm pretty sure he'll follow up with more books. In his mentoring practice, Simon helps people to find a deeper meaning and purpose in life by engaging them in philosophical dialogue. So he engages them about the challenges and opportunities they might be confronting. And he uses stoicism, by the way. As a side note here, when I mention the benefits of listening to classical Indian music during the interview, the serpentine energy I'm referring to is kundalini. I was going to mention that while talking to Simon, but somehow I forgot. And as a second side note, forgive the digitization of our voices on occasion. The internet connection can be a little bit temperamental. So I know you're going to enjoy listening to Simon and all he has to offer. Get ready. Here we go. Simon, it's great to have you. Welcome to Disembodied Podcast. Thanks, Evie. Again, it is, it is awesome to be here. I really like all of the things that you represent. Uh, you're a musician, a jazz musician, a poet, you're a photographer. Um, you're into philosophy, stoicism. You're a mentor, a philosophical mentor, and you're studying divinity. You're at divinity school. And um, those things are really, I think, in this day and age, that's a rare combination of things, I would say. Okay, that's more of like a Renaissance man, kind of a classical thinker and artist type personality. So I like all that about you very much. And one thing I wanted to get into right away is talking about music because I think music's pretty powerful for me. It has been in my life. And I listen to a pretty wide variety of music, by the way. Um, I should put that out there. It's not just limited to rock. I love Radiohead, for example. Uh, lots of rock, actually, but I love classical Indian music. I love like the Coltrane jazz from the 50s. I love so many different types of music. I can even sometimes get inclined to country music, but more like, I would say more like Irish music, you know, because American country music kind of emanated from Ireland and Scotland. Mm. So, you know, I'm pretty eclectic in that respect. But we'll be good friends then, because I mean, I've been <laughs> I've been listening to like Punjabi pop music and Middle oh, Eastern wow. music and jazz and classical and all since a very young age. Just been so strange. I have the musical library of a serial killer, probably. <laughs> just like so so weird and out there. But yeah, no, it's great to listen widely. Yeah, and to me, it doesn't even matter if it's in a language that is unintelligible to me. I don't really mm. care. Because I pick up on the feeling, I pick up on the soulfulness of the singing or just the instrumental part of it, whatever it is. But I was kind of, I guess in my 20s, um, I, I was really into writing and studying literature. I studied German lit for my bachelor's degree. I later studied English. So I fancied that literature was the highest form of art. And I was really wrapped up into poetry and fiction and all that. And I was kind of shocked when somebody told me that they thought music was the highest form of art. I think it disappointed me because I thought I'd put a lot of effort into writing. <laughs> and I thought, well, <laughs> if music is the highest form, I guess I should have learned to play an instrument or at least learned to sing or something. So at any rate, because music has had this kind of drug-like intoxicated presence in my life and just a lot of, it puts me on a high sometimes uh, that no other art form could possibly do. And I was just wondering if you as a musician feel that way when you're playing music or when you're creating music, composing, I don't know if you compose. Well, I, yeah, that's the thing. Cause I started out 
I have a bachelor of music with uh, my majoring in jazz trumpet and jazz singing. And so that, that was kind of my little corner of the music world, but there came a point there where, and this was on, this was only a couple of years ago when I was actually, I was finishing my degree. Cause I still only had like six months left. I, I stopped my music degree right at the very end to go on a cruise contract with my jazz band over in the Caribbean and the Mediterranean and amazing decision because, well, firstly, I met my wife there, but also just playing three hours every single night in your own jazz club with your own band is just out of this world. You know, nobody gets that opportunity and I was so grateful for it, but nonetheless, that was kind of my corner. I was a jazz trumpeter, jazz singer. But then when I was finishing my degree, I did a lot of work, researching Miles Davis and watching a lot of the interviews that he gave. And there are a few really interesting things about Miles Davis. I was more inter- less interested in the music. And, and I know that sounds terrible. I was more interested in the philosophy of creativity behind his music. You know, who, who was Miles Davis, the philosopher? What were the ideas that were moving him along in his creativity? One of them was that you know, he was very uncomfortable with even the term jazz, you know, because his idea was like, if you label something, then it's like a dead tradition that you're going to try and keep on reviving instead of a natural process of creativity flowing through you into whatever direction it goes. And that really changed me because I started to think, hang on, wow, look at these limitations in my mind. I see myself as this jazz trumpeter, jazz singer, but really I'm a creative artist and I can take that creativity to whichever direction it pulls me in. And at that point, that's when I was starting to write a little bit of poetry. That was when I was writing the poet and the sage. That's when I was picking up piano again, because that's an instrument that I loved when I was very young. But as soon as I get it, got in uh, lessons with it, it was too rigid for me. And I started to hate the instrument because I just didn't want to play it anymore because it, it was, we'll play these notes at this time. And that wasn't how my mind worked as a, as, as a young musician. And there's problems with my own discipline there, of course, but I came back to piano later on. And after a year of learning the piano self-taught, I started to notice I've practiced piano in the past year more than I've practiced trumpet or singing in my entire life. (laughs) And I have a degree in those, but the reason I practiced it more was because I, I chose to fall in love with the instrument and with the process of creating through that instrument. And so for me, I've kind of gone on that adventure of trying to figure out exactly what, what creativity naturally flows out of me. And so I did actually record, I'll have to send it to you. I recorded an entire album on piano, including, uh, you know, beautiful nature scenes from the local Sunshine Coast here and my singing and stuff like that. But to, to your question, I know I just went on a, on a massive rant there, but to your question about um, do, do we feel that, that kind of power of music as I'm there or in the performance, you know, one of my favorite things to do is to play a jazz concert with a quartet. That's my favorite setup of all time. So you've got piano, bass, drums. I like double bass. Don't give me the electric bass. I want double big fat bass. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, when we're there playing a concert, there's a thing in the jazz world that we, we say you're locked in, you know? So if everybody in the band is locked in, it's like we're right there on the razor's edge. Everybody is in that flow state working simultaneously with each other, listening to each other. But the thing about it is, it's not like each of us is thinking, okay, what's the bass doing? What's the drums doing? What's the piano doing? What's the singer doing? The trumpet, all this. No, we become one thing moving in the same direction, no matter where it goes. And that's what's so interesting about uh, jazz music is it's, it's a real, it's an art form of true freedom it's like you know let let's have a few little barriers here in terms of maybe you have a chord structure for the song but that's all you'll give the musicians and the rest of it we are going on an adventure and so yeah i mean when you're locked in and everybody is just part of that one organism that is making this incredible music 
and the audience is in hypnosis and they're with you as well. And, you know, when you have these triumphant moments in the music and the great thing about a jazz club is it's not like a classical concert where you have to be quiet and then you applaud at the end. No, you can yell out weird sounds. Oh yeah. You know, you can just, you can be rowdy. You can make the weirdest sounds that if you made them on the street, people would be like, what's with that guy. Right. But in a jazz club, it's about everybody being that one thing, enjoying the music and experiencing it and getting into that spirit of the music. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's powerful. It's it's really powerful. And whether you experience that through being there live with the music or, or listening to your favorite music or being a musician and being locked in in that moment, it's it's a privilege. Music is an absolute gift, you know, no matter how you experience it. I, I don't know if that answered your question, but I'll throw it back to you. <laughs> no, it did. Um, I think music is kind of, a, it results in a certain euphoria, you know, yes. you, can, you can tap into that euphoria and jazz is improvisational. So I guess you guys are just kind of co-creating something. You're kind of playing off each other sometimes. You must feel very close to your fellow musicians that you're working with it's like a community a tight community right well that's the thing i mean i've often said that if you know the language of of jazz and improvisation then you can go anywhere in the world with any musician who knows that language and you can have a conversation on stage the thing is though i mean i've i've also done work in bands where you know there's a tension between the musicians and just that there's negativity and you know some people don't get along with others and when that happens it's it's hard to it's hard to create that real beautiful environment but when when you're working with people who you genuinely love you know and I've had the the privilege to work with so many people who I just genuinely love everything about them and when we all really care about each other in that moment and want to make the performance the best that it can be just beautiful things happen. You know, it, it, it's quite amazing. So yeah, I mean, uh, as I said, it's, it's that language of music. And if you, if you can speak it, then you can have those conversations with, with other beautiful musicians as well. And, and, and that's, it's just a privilege. It's a real privilege. Okay. This is a bit weird, but do you think music changes your consciousness? Oh, I don't think you can argue that it doesn't. I mean, <laughs> like you go to a concert, right? And you watch what happens in the crowd, you know, it's, even if it's a rock concert or something like that, it's like everybody's in that hypnosis. They're under, under the spell of this music. They're bouncing to the same rhythm. They're dancing, you know, they can. And this is, this is one of the best things that I, uh, it, it's an interesting idea that I took away from Jordan Peterson. He just makes the point that you cannot reason out of the experience of music you, you know and so he says that if you're sitting at a concert and you're you're just taken away and you you know you can't help this beautiful feeling and this deep sensed meaning in that moment listening to this incredible symphony or something like that if somebody next to you says well you know it's just a bunch of you know instruments made out of these sorts of materials and there's just a bunch of musicians playing these things and like what what's you're going to be like hey shut up i'm listening to you know like <laughs> like what do you why are you telling me this you know you're arguing against something that is so clearly and innately powerful and meaningful and and i think that you know for for centuries and thousands of years people have understood that music changes the soul changes our consciousness even somebody like plato you know, and I believe in his Republic, he, he argues that there should be certain scales that are actually appropriate for the ideal society and other scales that should be left out based on their effect on. on so, so that was speaking about this back then that, you, you know, there are certain, you know, we would prescribe you certain scales for the soul, sounds for the soul. And I think that we've understood this for a long time. I don't think that you can argue that there is an extremely beneficial element of this, this overtaking of consciousness by music it teaches us to let go stop stop trying to think it's what <laughs> i have to say it's one of the reasons why you will never find me writing an academic piece breaking down a piece of music into its parts and uh, what's he doing here and what's it because to me it's it that's it's not an academic pursuit 
for me personally, it's, you know, it should teach us to let go of that sort of overcritical thinking and just to experience what it is in this moment right now, what's, what's happening to you as a result of you experiencing this music. So, yeah, I, I don't know. What do you think? Because I, I don't think you can really make an argument that it doesn't affect our consciousness, but I well, don't know. What do you think? I do think a lot of music appeals to the emotions, okay? So this would be maybe the lower side of humanity at times. You know, it can appeal, pop songs can appeal to your desire for revenge. You know, pop songs get pretty directed at exciting people, maybe sexually, maybe. There's always that, I, I think they get caught up in revenge a lot of times or showing off or, you know, they have their loops that they get caught up in. But I enjoy pop too. You know, I enjoy a lot of pop music, mm. Justin Bieber even, you know, it surprises me sometimes how good his pop songs are. I mean, mm. even now, not even like years ago. And uh, he must have a good producer. He must be working with a lot of people who really know how to arrange the music to appeal to a wide variety of people. Right. Yeah. It's not just appealing to teenagers. It's appealing to all sorts of people. Yeah. But. I feel that like when I listen to, on the other hand, classical Indian music, it whips you into kind of a kind of an ecstatic state of being, which is, I would say, a little bit higher than just appealing to your emotions. Yeah. It gets that serpentine energy going up your spine and it, it can just kind of release through your crown chakra sometimes. I mean, it depends on how long you listen to it and what types of pieces you're listening to. I love that. Once I started getting into that, I thought, wow, this is definitely above pop music and rock music, but there are those kind of moody compositions by Radiohead always comes to mind because I think they're masterful, really masterful. Mm. They have a lot of dark discordant tones, but also these runs of just like elation, like pure elation in their songs. Mm. That's just, you know, I don't have to do drugs when I listen to them sometimes. Not that I do drugs anyway, but, you know, it's like, it's a substitute for drugs for me to get into that groove of those very um, elevating runs of, of music that they're producing. Yeah. And, and they know how to do it. They know how to do it very precisely. I think uh, Tom York is, even his singing, you know, you would listen to him at first and think, well, he's not really a good singer, but then he is a good singer, right? Surprisingly, like even Willie Nelson is a good singer. And I used to think that was kind of like country music was kind of silly. Mm. Now I realize that some of those people are really masterful at like maybe mastering the higher emotions, you know, bringing you to a higher state, you know, reflecting mm. on your life. And um, that's what I love about music so much is you can get the anthem rock from the who, you know, like motivational and then you can turn on something else, which is totally different. It makes you reflect on your life in a totally different way. So maybe yeah. some of it's deeper than, than some of the other things, you know, some of it's deep, some of it's not so deep. Yeah. No, I, I think you're exactly right. Man, there's so much, there's so much stuff in what you just said. I love it. Um, and I'm going to pick some of that apart. I love it. But we all recognize that there are some times when we have a truly deep experience with music and we say, wow, that music was deep. But then we recognize that there's some music that's kind of shallow. You know, I've listened to a lot of music and I've thought, ah, okay, you know, either, either that person is clearly like trying in a kind of propagandist sort of way to get a message across and push something out there. That, okay. Because to me, as an artist and as a philosopher even, I mean, I've had the really fortunate experience of, okay, so you write poetry or you play and compose music or you... Uh, you know, any, any other art form really you can think about, it seems to me like it, it's the experience of being in this infinite moment right now and experiencing what it is that is being offered within our souls and allowing that to flow out onto the page or through the instrument. And it's when we let go and allow the emotions, the experience of the situation that we now inhabit to flow through onto that page, it seems like that's when the true power of music or poetry or literature is captured. It's, it's, it's when it's not done in a kind of highly calculating, this is exactly what we need to do to push this message across right here sort of way. 
but rather is the experience of allowing that message to flow through onto the page. And I've, I've seen this because, you know, some of my poetry, I started to recognize that the, the people who would have the deepest experience with my poetry tended to be Christians. And I thought about that for a while and because I am not currently practicing in any one religion, but I did grow up as a Mormon. And so I have that real theological foundation beneath me when, you know, they, they taught us all about the Bible and all these sorts of uh, powerful ancient ideas and universal truths and things like that. And, and when I started writing my poetry, I started to realize, wow, that stuff is still in me, whether I like it or not. And it's coming out on the page and I have no choice over that. Like, I, well, I could say, well, I'm not going to listen to the deepest insights of my consciousness, but that would be such a mistake, right? It would be such a mistake to not write what your heart wants you to write. And so I would put this down and I, and these people, these Christians would be there crying, reading my poetry. And that, do you believe what you're writing here? And I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to say. It's a, it's a difficult question, but to me, it's the, the artist should capture those emotions and portray them through the painting, through the page, through the music. And it's when they are able to truly capture that emotion that I believe that it best translates over to other human beings. And it's also interesting because music speaks to something just so fundamental about us and so deep within our history. Cause we, you know, we've always been singing or, you know, clanging things together, drums, whatever it is, you know, we, you even think that we're, we're kind of nested within this landscape that also has a rhythm to it. You've got night and you've got day, you know, you've, you've got the day, you've got the month, you've got the year, you know, there's, there's like a rhythm to our lives, the seasons, there, there's a rhythm to everything around us at all times. Well, I want to, I want to pull you up on something that you said there. It was very interesting. You mentioned that when you listen to classical Indian music, there's this kind of serpentile uh, uh, nature to it, you know, gets you kind of moving in that way. And it's funny because I've, I've just recently been learning the didgeridoo, which is, as many of your listeners may know, it's one of the, I think it might actually be the oldest known instrument to date. And it's the sacred instrument of the Australian Aboriginal people. And so it's really, it's the sound of Australia. One thing that I love about it is that I'm literally playing a tree. You know, I love that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's brilliant, right. To just to, to, but, but one of the interesting things was that when I started learning the instrument, I was taking notes while I was playing because my approach to learning an instrument is don't go too technical at the start, just develop a love of the instrument and a relationship with the instrument and start playing and see what happens. That's my artistic direction. And one of the things that I wrote was it's almost like there's like a snake within us, right? This is one of the notes that I wrote down when I was learning the didgeridoo, because you breathe in through your nose, it kind of goes through your body in all the winding directions, and then it comes back out through the tube of the didgeridoo. And so in a way, you're almost creating this endless loop of this snake that kind of goes through you and back out the didgeridoo. And, you know, it's just interesting. That's such a deep, fundamental, uh, mythological metaphor that we use uh, as human beings that goes back as old as we can even remember mythology. And so clearly music is doing something to you through that experience of listening to that Indian music of reuniting your, your mind, your consciousness with that ancient past, you know? And so, yeah, it's, it's powerful stuff. And it's, it's just so interesting to think about how it affects the soul and, and even just about how we most effectively transfer that information of music, you know, as artists, how, how do we, how do we create the most honest and on point piece of music that transfers those emotions? It's something to think about. Yeah. Yeah. It makes you wonder what's locked inside of people who haven't really ever tried to learn an instrument or whatever. You kind of wonder what would, come out of me if I did like if everybody it used to be that people used to learn instruments a lot it was taught at school they don't really do that so much in the U.S. anymore I don't know about other countries but you kind of wonder like if more people had the ability to play music what would come out would we have new forms of music like more forms of music I mean we already have a lot in the world but it just makes me wonder like it seems to be almost like untapped 
creativity nowadays because there's so many people that just they're more focused on the world is focused on technology nowadays entertainment you know there's certain things that are occupying our time and that's why you're kind of interesting you're remarkable really that you've you're kind of a an autodidact type person you've taught yourself a lot of things and you're always interested in learning and maybe that's dying out a little bit right now people are so preoccupied with their phones and i think just entertainment i see like video games being played a lot and that focus that uh, technology has us captive i think yeah oh my gosh yeah 100% i think you know we we carry around with us these devices at all times that is designed in almost every way to keep us coming back to them yeah and you know we we use social media platforms where some of the brightest individuals in in the world ever known are being paid a lot of money to try and figure out how they can get us to spend an extra 10 seconds on their app. You know, it's like we, we live in a world that very much rewards addiction to, to certain applications or platforms or products and all this sort of stuff. But certainly I think it would be a mistake if we stopped teaching children how to play instruments, you know, and, and how to, how to, how to love music, how to love the experience of playing music or singing Although in, in another way, I mean, we do live in a time where we are very fortunate to have access to more music than we've ever known in humanity. So at any moment, you can just go to your phone, you can, let's listen to some music from Scandinavia or Africa, or wherever, you know, we can experience that, which is amazing. And also it, it is, I would say, easier than ever to unlock your creativity through the various technologies that we have now. The problem is, as I see it, is there is such a thing as kind of shallow creativity and then there's kind of deeper creativity. I mean, and, and so, you know, do we get obsessed with creating our kind of Instagram videos and things like this that are kind of, okay, well, that's going to be up there for a few seconds. And there are some really creative, amazing, amazing Instagram accounts where people are doing really great creative uh, pursuits but the the role of the artist i mean is to fully engage in that creative process and to create masterpieces you know works that uh, transform works that uh, are so powerful and i mean i think that there's opportunities for for artists today to to truly engage in that process but sometimes it's just easy to get distracted by the kind of quick fix opportunities to use these sorts of technologies. But one thing that I, I did want to mention, you know, you're kind of talking about the fact that I'm doing music and poetry and philosophy and studying divinity, all these things. There was a point there where I started to notice that no matter what I'm doing, if I call myself a philosopher, no matter what I'm doing, I'm engaging in the practice of philosophy. So when I'm playing music, I'm trying to express something in my music that I cannot possibly express in my philosophical podcasts or interviews or uh, by speaking. I, I cannot express the things that I express in music through speaking or writing. And when I write poetry, I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm expressing something that I cannot put into music or into into my podcast and and so to me it seems like i'm trying to and and i say it seems like because i'm always cautious of believing that i know exactly what i'm doing with with my adventure that i'm going on right now because i want to see what i'm up to not force myself in a certain direction and so it seems like what i'm up to is is trying to express a philosophy of life through as many different mediums as possible and not in some sort of propagandistic way of this is what you should do but but just trying to unlock a certain authenticity within myself and go on an adventure and take people on that adventure with me and so that's kind of I think that the, I think that that's what I'm up to but we'll see you know we'll see in a few years <laughs> you have a long life ahead of you you're quite young you know, are, what are you in your late twenties or that's right. Yeah. Yeah. You have a long time ahead of you to gain perspective more and more on 
what you want to keep doing or let fall away or whatever. Yeah. But I wanted to talk a little bit about divinity school because sometimes people sort of abandon religion and cleave to philosophy. I've noticed. I had a friend who majored in philosophy and she told me that after that, she couldn't really, I don't think she could believe so much in religion anymore. And she actually didn't believe in much anymore. She said for a while, Mm. (laughs) it kind of, I think the, maybe the dryness of dissecting all these uh, ideas just kind of threw her for a loop for a while, but she had a, a tough time believing in anything. She told me for yeah. a while. I don't know what she believes now. I should ask her. But at any rate, do you think you've discarded the religion you grew up with totally? Or do you think that you're retaining some of it or half of it? I mean, what are you maintaining? Mm. Well, I don't think I can really help the fact that I've maintained so much of it, you know, because it's it's what I grew up with. It's the, you know, even outside of Mormonism, my ancestry is within the kind of Christian empire, you know? And so I, I, I cannot help even being biologically Christian. It's so deep within me as a human being. And, and so I can't help the fact that it is within me like that. But, but also I think since leaving the church, I never became one of those extremely cynical people who then started sending like anti-Mormon literature around to everybody. Like you got to get, you know, that just wasn't the way that I wanted to do it to the extent that I understand any way that I was, you know, doing it. I think I, I kind of just cowardly kind of shirked away um, over a few, few months, but, but nonetheless, I've always maintained a deep respect for my tradition as a culture. You know, I think that culturally there is so much to celebrate within the Mormon faith and within Christianity at large. I think there is so much beauty and richness there that, you know, even now, I mean, I I find a, a really beautiful affinity for other Mormons. I was just speaking on another podcast the other day and I listened to one of their episodes and found out that they they too were Mormons and I loved it. I, you know, hey, you know, because we have a certain understanding that we grew up with this sort of teaching and it's, it's very nice, but I think what I am doing with the Master of Divinity is I'm, I'm going through this with an open mind and open heart, genuinely wanting to see if there's anything here. You know, so if, if, if my lectures, our lecturers are able to teach me about any steps that I might take towards deeper enlightenment or a, a, a better experience in life uh, that can help me and those around me to flourish a little bit more, I'm taking that, you know, I'll accept it, whatever they, whatever they give, if, if, if it stands to scrutiny, if it stands to, to reason, you know? And so I'm, I'm going into this and and I'm in this with, with an open heart, open mind, just seeing what's there. Ultimately what I want is a theological education so that I can deal better with these ancient sacred texts. And so I can have a richer foundation beneath me when I practice philosophy because I, I kind of believe, and this going back to what you've said of me, might be sort of one of those Renaissance ideas. I kind of believe in that idea that theology is the mother, the, the queen of the sciences and philosophy, her handmaiden. You know, philosophy, theology is talking about the deepest values of humanity, the deepest realities of existence and consciousness. And, and that if anything is what God is, the, you know, the ground of being, the the universal consciousness. We're trying to figure out a little map to understand that. So I just figured, if I want any sort of education, let me go to what I believe is the highest possible education. See if I can find something there and use philosophy as well to aid me in that pursuit. So, to your question, religion, man, I think that there is so much beauty and richness in in religion. But you also bring up an interesting point because you mentioned that your friend, I believe I'm getting you right when, when you said that she, she essentially got, not bored, that's the wrong word, but there was a certain dryness there. I think she felt very jaded and yeah. kind of unplugged from believing in anything anymore. That's what she yes. said. Well, I, I just want to focus on that word that you used though, dryness, right? Because 
that's such that links to a deep fundamental mythological idea, which is that every culture at all times is liable to turn to stone, right? Dry, <laughs> dead, yeah. right? And that means that the spirit, the living waters have drained out of that culture and it can no longer sustain itself, right? But the idea is, well, we need to let those living waters flow back into the culture so that it can live again, so that the gardens begin to grow again. And I think that one of the problems of our modern age is that, you know, when a culture turns to stone, that includes the religions, it includes the clergy people, it includes the religious who, who, are, who are seemingly trying to allow the living waters of spirituality and, and cosmic visions and, and God and divinity back into the people. But let me give you a perfect example of this. In Brisbane, this capital city near, near where I live, there's a street there that has two churches on it. On one corner, you've got this beautiful little stone chapel. It's something out of a fairy tale. You know, it's just absolutely stunning. And every part of it is just, you know, there's imperfections, but it's perfect as a whole because of, you know, they took their time, they took their energy to make this a temple to God. You know, that's what it's supposed to be, the highest possible good, virtue. And then on the other side of the street, is this god-awful yellow brick monstrosity of a chapel. <laughs> and you think, like, those are two different time periods. Clearly the living waters were flowing through these people when they built this chapel on one side. And clearly there's something not quite right about, about it. Because if you're going to build a chapel, you might think, let's build it as beautifully, a, stun a stunning haven of spirituality and beauty and divinity and God and, and virtue. Let's make it perfect. But instead, there was a period where pretty much everyone in the culture was building these ugly brick buildings, just no thought go into it. It's just a place to congregate in. And you think that happens to the churches too. So I think that our challenge in religion is always how do we allow the living waters of the spirit to flow back into it so that the people within this religion feel as though they are having a true experience of divinity and a closeness with God, as opposed to it just being purely a dogmatic pursuit of these sorts of ideas. So that's, that's the way I see it anyway. Maybe I'm a bit too harsh on that church, but I don't think so. <laughs> Unless there's some, you know, surprising thing going on inside where people feel very tight as a community and loving and giving. Of course. And you never know what's going on, you know. Of course. Yeah. I think my point is more to the, to the idea that we in our cultures are taken away by the, the spirit of our age. You know? mm -hmm. and, and so we cannot help but be within that spirit of our age. And so... You know, even if you go into a cathedral, the cathedral tells you something about the way that the people who built it saw the world. You know, who, who in their right mind today would dedicate themselves as a craftsman, craftsman to spend their entire life building a cathedral that they might never see finished? You know, yeah. what, kind of, what kind of amazing eternal vision of your place within this cosmos would you have to have in order to dedicate yourself in that way? And as you say, certainly we don't know what's going inside. And so, you know, it may be the tightest congregation that I've ever seen. If I went into that church that I believe was, was pretty ugly. And I don't, so that's why I want to make the point. I'm not, I'm not judging the people within. What I am saying is that even architecture gives us a representation of the general spirit of that age, that decade, that year, whatever it is. And so in that way, culture, you know, we, we, the artists and the architects and the musicians, all these people, we create the, the goods of the culture, you might say, but then that culture speaks back to future generations and teaches you of past times and what the general spirit was. And that's, that's what's so interesting about culture is that it, if, if you listen, if you watch, if you pay careful attention, it speaks a message. And I think that the message that I'm trying to get across in that, those two examples is this idea of, you know, the living waters and then, and then it kind of dries up and then, you know, our job is to bring it back in. So 
it's certainly interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to see things like that. But I don't know, maybe I'm too cynical. <laughs> so the yellow church might be a sort of fast food type religious experiment. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot of that, right? <laughs> I mean, I, let's make no mistake. There's a lot of fast food religions out there. But, but also there's, there's probably a place for that. You know, one of the very few things that I will claim to understand about Christianity is that if Christ represented anything, he was in part a representation of the unification of the highest and the lowest, you know? And so that's one thing that Christianity has as a real tool is that, you know, part of their philosophy is to do some sort of fast food Christianity for people like let's, Hey, if it gets Jesus into their life, we're going to do that, you know? And so not to be too judgmental of those sorts of things, but at the same time, I think that, the people who are turning against religion, falling away from religion, who are very critical of religion, I think that they've got some brilliant and very reasonable arguments. And I mean, all you have to look at is, you know, the pedophilia and stuff like that in, in the Catholic church or you know, in, in so many religions. And you think, you know, man, a haven is created. Even myself, every year when I, you know, I keep on getting older and I keep on finding out more and more about certain people who even I knew within my church whose families were sexually abusive, you know, and you think people who fall away from religion have very good reasons to do so. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, when you fall away from a religion, you kind of have to ask yourself, did I really take the time to sift the wheat from the chaff? Or was I just bitter and resentful at some of the people who I saw and the terrible examples that they gave me or the terrible things that they did because there is value there. There is a baby in that bathwater and you can't throw it out. You know, it's, it's not wise to do so. So I think I'm trying to navigate those waters at the moment. Pedophilia is, is an extreme and there was a culture, you know, particularly in the Catholic church that just kind of fostered that ongoing And that's very sad. And, but they did other stuff too. You know, they were like taking babies from women and selling them. And, you know, there's just a lot of bad stuff going on. And, and to me, it's not just a sign of the Catholic church being corrupt or something. It's just absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. It's what happens with people. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it could happen in your neighborhood and have nothing to do with church even. So We all have to know that. But at the same time, people in the church were posturing and pretending to be the holiest of the holy, et cetera. And it's hard to live with that, that you were always talked down to. And yet these people that were talking down to you were just, they had an ugly side, a really ugly side. Yeah. So it doesn't sit well with people. And I understand it as well. I think, you know, my... I think I have a different orientation though. You know, I'm not blaming necessarily the church in my case, it'd be the Protestant church. I I wasn't Catholic or Mormon, but you know, evangelical Christianity in America is kind of its own beast. You know, it's kind of, it's got its uh, prosperity gospel on the one hand and just, there's all sorts of stuff tangled up with it. And I find the indoctrination side of it to just be, more than I can bear nowadays. I don't want to be indoctrinated repeatedly. (laughs) I don't want people giving me DVDs and books and tracts. And this is a somewhat religious country, even though it's a modern country for the most part. I say for the most part, because we are a bit old fashioned in some ways, but I feel the indoctrination has just got to end. I don't see the point in it anymore. You know, we've Mm. had two millennia, 2000 years of Christianity do we need to keep handing out tracts? Did somebody not understand what Christianity was about? And it's not that I have no appreciation for Christianity, because I do. I think there's a lot of, well, there's an unconditional love message that actually resonates in many religions, but Christianity does it beautifully, okay? The stories of Jesus are very inspiring, you know, um, about not casting the first stone, and just so many stories, you know, are, are really memorable. And yeah, I grew up with it too. I can't extricate myself from it entirely. But I think to have a free spirit, to be a free spirit in this world as a creative person or otherwise, I have to drop the indoctrination and I have to come up 
with my own open-minded worldview. And some of it may actually harken back to Christianity, but some of it may not. I, I appreciate Hinduism. It's a newfound appreciation for me. And I used to think it was freaky when I was a kid. You know, I used to see Hindu gods and goddesses and think that shit is freaky, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I've, I've transcended that and I've started to appreciate Hinduism. And, you know, I always appreciated Buddhism, I would say. I thought Buddhism was kind of beautiful, even when I was like a teenager and stuff. So, I mean, I've learned to appreciate other philosophies and maybe that's part of being closer to divinity is you start to appreciate the accretion of knowledge, the accretion of philosophies that have colored the world over the years. Some of them are dying out. Some of them are emerging. Some of them are just changing. They're in flux. And maybe you just try to appreciate that, right? Instead of just always criticizing it, you can try to appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just so it's just so easy to criticize it. It's one of the easiest things that anybody can do is find a reason to criticize religion. There's nothing, there's nothing profound in a criticism of religion because it's just so readily available to us. What I'm interested in is going on the adventure of actually trying to have the knowledge of what a religion is about in its true depths, you know, even taking a look at Christianity. I know it's easy to, to perhaps think that, you know, well, everybody should understand it by now. But I mean, look, there's this idea that hell and heaven are these places that we might go to in the afterlife. But it's interesting to note that a lot of the early Christian fathers didn't see it like that. Heaven and hell were around us at all times, you know, right here available to us. And there's such a depth and a richness to the theology of Christianity that I just recognized that I have no idea. I think I came to a point in my life where I said, hang on, I left my church when I was younger. I have no idea about the depths of what was trying to be taught there. And I really don't know anything about Christianity in its entirety. I mean, really, if, if I claim to be any sort of philosopher or if I'm, if I'm working towards being a theologian, then I should probably have some sort of firm foundation beneath me of, of an understanding of these things. And I have to say that I think to me, one of the biggest things that pushed me in the direction that I'm in now was writing the poet and the sage, because I started to realize that this sort of poetry and prose and deep theological ideas, like it, it was almost like I stood back after finishing writing that. And I started to think this is some sort of even Christian mysticism that's coming out of me right now. And it's, it's this experience of awakening to the infinity, the eternity of everything in this moment. And it kind of freaked me out. And I thought, well, I don't know what just happened in writing this book. I don't know what, even what it's about in its entirety. And they've got this sacred text, the Bible that thousands, millions of people for centuries have been saying, Hey, this is the book. <laughs> this is the book. Let's go. And, and I, I kind of think, well, I don't know anything about that book. I don't know anything about the, the uh, experience of the poets and writers who put that together or, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know anything. And, and so I think that that is fuel for the adventure that I'm going on now with the Master of Divinity is just recognizing I'm not going into this as a Christian saying I'm all for it and just teach me how to preach this. No, I'm here to learn what you have to teach and to see if it makes sense. And, and if the experience of that deep, deep knowledge, that embodiment of this divine experience, if that comes along with it. And if it does, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very happy. And if it doesn't, I've still got a theological education that I truly believe will help me in, in all pursuits in my life. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with learning and definitely following your bliss in this case, because it's going to take you to another place and it may be an unexpected place, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I applaud you for doing it. Um, I would never, you know, steer someone away from studying something that is kind of a passion for them and, and is satisfying to them. Is divinity school, I mean, is it, what my question is, is, is it taught from different Christian perspectives? Because there are so many varieties of Christianity. 
Mm. How is it taught nowadays? I don't know. Well, first, I just want to say this, that when, when you mentioned following your bliss, I don't know how much of it is blissful. <laughs> I mean, to, to me, it was kind of like, you have to do this, right? And, and not necessarily a, a passion project as much as a recognition of some kind of duty to serve myself as an artist and to serve my community in the best way that I can. And so, you know, it's, I find that I'm a very, um, I struggle as a student because the artist in me wants to go and play and create and, <laughs> you know, do all sorts of fun things. But the, the academic side of things is very, you know, here's how it is and go, you know, write this and write that. And, and, and so I, I don't do well with that, which is why the first, th- this actually gets to your question here. The first class that I did, and it's the only class I've done so far, I'm about to pick up four more this semester. But the first class I did was on prophecy of the Old Testament. And the teacher, one of the reasons why I chose it as the first class that I do is because the teacher actually said, well, for our final assignment, you can either do a two and a half thousand word essay, or you can do an art piece and then write a 1000 word explanation and, 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 you know, a a breakdown of the ideas that you might've been getting across. And so I thought, great, okay, I'm doing that. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. what I ended up giving her was about 52 poems and a seven and a half thousand word essay and, and an hour long music album. (laughs) So I think I overwhelmed her a little bit, but the point was I was grateful that she gave the opportunity for varying types of students to engage with these ideas in the way that seemed most appropriate to them. Not, you know, I don't believe that teachers should just say, well, you learn how you want to learn. No, but she gave us the right guidance. So far, my experience has been that all of the teachers are just genuinely passionate about students having this theological understanding. And none of them have given me any impression that they are closed off to other alternative perspectives that might come into this. But at the same time, I recognize that I'm there to learn from people who are supposedly experts. And so I kind of have to humble myself and, and say, well, I'm, I'm not here to just push my own ideas about what all this is because I don't even know what it is. I mean, one of my favorite teachers who I've had on the podcast, his name is Stephen Jenkinson, and he he made a point that stuck with me. One of those moments where a few sets of words just like really sink into your soul and stay with you for a long time. He said, most people go out there into the world seeking to fix problems that they haven't taken enough time to even figure out what the problem is. You know, they, they, they go, you know, throwing spears at a problem, but they don't even know what they're throwing spears at. And so part of me is trying to solve a few problems that I see just in general with, with religion and, and perhaps with my own work, trying to get a deeper understanding for me to understand where, where, where I'm going as an, as an artist, as a philosopher, as a theologian. But also the other part of me is saying, Simon, you're an idiot. You don't know anything. And these people might know something that you don't. So listen, pay attention, be guided. It's, it's always going to be play between those two states of mind, you might say. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. It might be surprising where it leads you, you know, you, you never know. <laughs> I can guarantee it'll be surprising. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I mean, any artist is constantly surprised. If, if they're a true artist, they're, they're always surprised because this is something that George Carlin said. He, he said that the true artists, you know, they're kind of on an adventure. They don't really know where they're going, right? But they always have this kind of vague dissatisfaction with how things currently are. And they're always kind of pushing the boundaries a little bit more. But like, I, I don't know where I'm going, where I'm being taken ultimately. There was a year there, 2020, where my wife asked me, what was the best thing about the past year? And I just said, the best thing about the past year is that how I see the world now the kind of consciousness that is inhabiting me or I'm inhabiting at this point, I don't even recognize it compared to how I saw the world at the start of 2020. You know, it it was just two completely different ways of seeing my place within the world, within the cosmos, within everything. And so to me, I'm, I'm just excited to be led on this adventure. And I try to bring people along with me, whether it's through the podcast or through my books or my music, uh, 
we've we've got some really cool, exciting adventures going along, and I, I haven't been led wrong so far by just letting go a little bit and seeing what adventure, what the adventure leads to. Yeah, and I'm sure you feel that way with even with your podcast as well, right? I mean, it's you can't help but be changed as a result of the conversations that you must have with people on your show. And you look back and you think, wow, I can't believe that I took that step to just do that one little thing, release that first episode and see who I get to talk to. And you probably had that experience yourself, right? I did. Um, I, it took me a couple of years to even decide to do it because I'm a private person. And I thought, do I really want my voice and thoughts floating around yeah. out in the world, you know, it, it kind of bothered me, actually, I, I think I'm more private and introverted, maybe than I want to be even. But when 2020 came along, I just said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to have to do this because I felt bad for people. I felt like I was getting through the pandemic a lot better. I could meditate, I could do a lot of things that I didn't always have time for before the pandemic. And I felt like I was making good use of time. And uh, I was kind of happy in some ways. <laughs> I mean, not happy for society. Yeah, society was clearly suffering. And, you know, I did have my bad days where I, I felt trapped at home and just mad that I couldn't just do whatever I wanted to do. I couldn't, I had to cancel trips that I had wanted to take and stuff like that, like many people. But on the other hand, I, I think I fared better than a lot of people. And I thought it was maybe due to my mindset where I just kind of, um, I don't get too attached to outcomes. And, you know, maybe that's the little Buddhist inside of me, you know, meditation and connecting with the spirit side is important to me. So I think for those reasons, I thought I need to share this with somebody. And even if nobody really cares, <laughs> I'm just going to share it anyway, and we'll see what happens. And that's what you have to do. Yeah. You have to take a step. And, you know, I'm a writer as well. I've, I've been taking you know, doing some photography lately as well. You know, I'm always creating things mm. and to the point where I can't really stop, you know, I'll even knit things. And, you know, I just learned knitting a few years ago because I was compelled to figure out how two sticks and yarn can make something, you know, I just had to like figure it out and do it. And I don't know, I'm always thinking of a new creative project that could serve me well, or could, yeah. um, serve the podcast or whatever. Yeah. I mean, look, to create is to be human, right? I mean, it's a fundamental human experience. And and I love, yeah, I did knitting for a little while. It's great. You know, it's just, it, it's it's about, you know, this process of, of us as human beings engaging in the creation of something. I mean, beautiful. I'm really glad that you're looking for all these different avenues to allow the creativity. Oh no, is my connection gone? It's kind of fading in and out right now. I oh, I apologize. Yeah, it's okay. Well, what are your tips and tricks, you know, for maintaining an even keel in life and not getting too upset by anything that goes wrong for you? That would be spiritual advice, I think. You know, what do you have going in terms of keeping yourself on straight and narrow? Yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> that's a tough one, especially for any artist to... um to answer because uh, I mean, our, our responsibility to the public is really to not stay on that straight and narrow, but to go outside and to explore. But uh, I, I would say that certainly the foundation that I have within, I guess my understanding of the stoic philosophy has been really quite important for me. You know, one of, one of the key states of mind that the stoics tried to get us into when we engage with their works or if we go deep into un understanding the philosophies is just to bring our attention right back as close to us as we can, you know, right here in this moment right now, because that's all that there is. It, it's this. And even with their ethics, it's very interesting that the Stoics would say, you know, there, there are basically three things. There are goods that we should move towards, and that's virtue. That's it. Just virtue of our character, virtue of the soul, right? Virtue in our actions. That's what's good. That's what we move towards. Vice, you know, the opposite of virtue in, 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 in our actions and in our, in our characters, right? So we need to move away from that. And everything else, 
money, computer, microphone, books, every, everything that we see outside of us, right, is indifferent, meaning it can at any moment participate with virtue or participate with vice based on how we use it. And so built into their whole ethical philosophy is this very crazy idea that at any one moment, bring your attention back in and just focus on what's the appropriate action right now. What's the appropriate way to behave in this single moment? Stop thinking about tomorrow, next week, next month. They haven't arrived yet. They may never arrive. Uh, I've got this tattooed onto my arm. It's a memento mori, remember death, you know, could catch up with you at any single moment. <laughs> and so, and Seneca even made the very interesting point that we need to remember that we're pretty bad at predicting the future. When was the last time that you had some crazy stress or anxiety about something that was going to happen two weeks from now? When was the last time it actually happened? You know, we, we, we basically look into the future and we think, oh, I can't believe that's going to happen. Or I can't believe this is going to happen. Or we hope, which is the other side of that coin saying, well, I hope that this will happen. I hope that this will happen. Either way, what we're doing is we're setting an expectation for the future that may or may not actually happen. And we're going to feel the emotions of that time in the future right here in this moment. So when I fear something next week, I'm pulling the negative horrible energy of next week, if it even happens, right, into my body right now. And it, that can't possibly be good for this moment and making the most appropriate decision. So as I said, that's, that's kind of something that keeps me grounded is, you know, when I have a stressful day, when I've got 20 projects at once balancing, and that's been pretty much the last six months, maybe three years, um, maybe my entire life. Anyway, so when, when I have all those projects going, I always try to bring myself back to what can I do right now? What simple action can I take that is going to make things better? And I try to do that. And as long as I'm able to pull my attention back into that moment and that, that appropriate next step, that appropriate next action, then you're kind of locking yourself into that adventure and saying, well, let's see where this takes me. And, and, and this is an idea that is found in, in, the, uh, in the Beatitudes as well, the, the Sermon on the Mount, where it says, you know, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Well, today, there are problems to deal with right here today, right now. Deal with those. And if you can learn how to deal with the problems of today really well, then as you're doing that, you are also at the same time learning how to deal with tomorrow's problems well and next week's problems well, because you're always going to be here in this day doing this thing right now. So I think that that's a powerful idea that can help people to just bring their attention back into what is surrounding them in this particular moment, just to see what can I do one thing that will move me closer to whatever it is that I'm trying to achieve. So, yeah, it's a good one. Very good idea to keep in mind. Um, I yeah. think most of us are living in the future or living in the past in some way. Yeah. I include myself. I, I try not to get apprehensive about the future, but I was always a worrier. That was like my nature. So yeah. I've tried to distance myself from that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's something that we need to practice, right? I mean, philosophy is a practice and through practicing, we make these kind of far out philosophical theories we bring them into our body and we make them embodied, you know, within ourselves so that virtue is not just something that we're always trying to achieve, but something that we can participate in, in each moment of our lives. And so I think that that is really the role of any sort of public philosopher, at least who, who philosophers who are trying to do the job of philosophy, which is to love wisdom, you know, is to help people to see ideas that could be embodied within themselves that would lead them to a deeper, more profound experience with life. So to me, when I think about the role of philosophy, I, I go right back to the Greek definition of the word philo meaning love and Sophia meaning wisdom, love, wisdom. That's it. That's what philosophy is. And this is, this is what's beautiful about the Stoics as well as they were all on board with that. That was it. If we're philosophers, we love and seek after wisdom. That's it. And so, you know, I think that people always need to remember that, yes, philosophy is, it's, it's difficult. It's going to be a struggle to, to practice these ideas and to bring them into your life. And you're always going to be living in the future or living in the past. And it's hard to get yourself centered in this moment, but 
that's why we practice these things. That's why we practice certain exercises or ideas in our lives so that we can bring our attention back more readily in each moment. And, you know, it has to be embodied. It has to be. Yeah. I, I think that's um, sage advice. <laughs> I hope so. Maybe I've participated with <laughs> bringing that down right now, but it's, it's just practical advice. It's just practical, you know. No, it's, it's good stuff. Um, so we're going to put in the show notes for this episode um, a link to your website so people can pick up your book, listen to your music, read your poetry, connect with you as a philosophical mentor if they want to. Um, you offer a lot, actually. And I, I'm hoping you'll give me a little snippet of your music and maybe I can add that to this uh, recording. Absolutely. We'll do. I mean, if anybody wants to hear it out there, I mean, it's if you search Paradisa Suite, that's the piano album that I did. And there will be more coming soon. I'll send you a link because it's really hard to spell the word Paradisa. It's it's the original thought- word of Paradise. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's a weird one. But, you know, really this has be- been such a beautiful conversation. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough. Like I, I, you're a beautiful interviewer. You know, uh, the questions have been beautiful and profound and uh, I've just really enjoyed this conversation. I hope we have have more. I hope we get to do this again. 